It seems that it is Jesus' preference to communicate through the word picture. Over and over and over again, when Jesus taught, he used word pictures to communicate what he wanted to people to understand. In, in, in fact, if you later, don't do it right now, but if you read through the Gospels, you'll see where, for example, Jesus is just walking along and, and, uh, and he's walking with his disciples. And then he goes, hey, hey, do you, do you see that? Look at that, look at that over there. Do you see that woman sweeping out her house? She's, she's uh, t taking all of her furniture out and throwing it out in the front yard. He said the, the kingdom of God is, is like that. It, it's like a woman who loses the coin in her house and then she sweeps out her entire house to find that coin. And he walks a little further and he finds this, picks up this, this tiny little mustard seed and he says, hey, hey, you know what? The kingdom of God is like this, this tiny little mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds, and, but yet when it goes into the ground and dies, it grows so large that birds of prey will, will perch on it. He says the kingdom of God is like that shepherd over there who, who if he owned a hundred sheep, he, and if he loses one, he leaves the 99 to go find the other one. The kingdom of God is, is like a father who had two sons and the younger son was, was just a rotten, rotten brat and he wanted all his money up front and he took it and he spent it on hookers and booze. That's a new translation. And, uh, and it all went really badly for him and he came home and the father, in his glee, threw a polo shirt on him and ordered Corky's ribs in. That's, what, that's my translation of that story. And listen, the truth is, uh, he said it over, did that over and over again, but I'm, I'm just really scratching the surface because it's not only Jesus, but in the Old Testament, God would come to the prophets and he'd say, I want you to live something out. I want you to do something. I want you to live this deal out so I can explain something to my people and show them something because they're not going to understand it and believe it unless, unless I make them see it. So, for example, one day he comes to this guy named Hosea and he says to him, Hosea, I want you to marry a hooker. And, and Hosea rightly asks a question, uh, did you say hooker? And, uh, and he says, yeah, I want, you to marry, I want you to marry a hooker. And here's the deal. She's going to be unfaithful and she's going to rip your heart out of your chest. And, but, but you're going to be faithful to her and you're going to love her anyway. In fact, you will sell all that you have to buy her back because that's a picture of how much I love you. Now go. And then in one of my all-time favorite moves in all of Scripture, which probably reveals something about me, uh, but, it, but God comes to the prophet Isaiah and he says to him, Egypt and Cush are about to be put to shame by the Assyrians. So what I want you to do for the next two years is take off all your clothes and run through the streets naked. That's your ministry. Go. <laughs> Seriously, that's, that's, I mean, he didn't say it exactly that way, but that's there. That's in there. And, 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 and that's just, I don't know what that says about me, but that, that's my favorite story. That the guy's ministry was to run around naked for two years. It's weird. I mean, there's some strange stuff when you read the prophets. I mean, like one guy had to lay in a, he had to lay on a side for, uh, anyway, I'll just, you read it. You'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. But you know what? Even with, he even communicates in his creation through word pictures. Ephesians 5 tells us that the relationship between a man and his wife it is not just about physical attraction. It's not about hormonal drives. It's a picture of how God longs for you and how he wants to be in relationship with you. Marriage is a picture of the relationship between the church and Jesus. And so God loves the word picture. 
Colossians would actually call it shadows of the form of Christ. He, he loves to communicate in this way. And now we're going to read through Hebrews chapter 7. And, and this text explains a word picture of something very, very mysterious that occurred. In Genesis chapter 14, we're not going to read it, but in Genesis 14... Abraham had pursued and killed some invading kings who had come and they had, they had kidnapped his nephew and they'd taken all kinds of plunder and kidnapped a lot of people. And so he pursued them and he killed them. And on his way back, he runs into this guy named Melchizedek. And it's, it's a really, really interesting uh, story because normally when, it, when, an, when an Old Testament character uh, is introduced, the Old Testament normally tells you something about their ancestry or the time in which they lived or when they died. However, when Melchizedek shows up on the scene, it just doesn't tell us anything about it. I mean, he just appears out of nowhere. There's just a few verses about him, and then he disappears. He was a very mysterious cult, uh, character to the Jews of the first century. And now here... The author of Hebrews is going to unpack this word picture that God was giving to all of us. So what we're going to do is we're just going to read through this thing, make application, and then we'll dive back into the text. And I'm going to, we're going to break it up. So what's going to happen a lot today, we're going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit. And we're going to, we're going to be kind of all over the place because that's sort of just the way this text works. That's the way it's laid out. So here we go. Let's, uh, in the first three verses, we get... The word picture. So here we go, starting in verse 1, Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, by the way, Melchizedek, it's actually, we're told a little bit later, Melchizedek translates, the word means, king of righteousness. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, now Salem translates peace. So king of righteousness and king of peace. Does, uh, do, do we know anybody else that goes by those titles? By anybody think of anybody? Well, let's keep going. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, now this blessing that Melchizedek gave to Abraham in Genesis included uh, offering wine and, and offering bread. And uh, bread is a symbol of sustenance and strength and wine is a symbol of life and joy. So here we have Abraham exhausted from this battle. He comes across the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and, 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 and he offers him, the king, this Melchizedek offers him strength and life. Is this beginning to sound familiar to anybody? An exhausted and weary traveler is approached by the king of righteousness and peace and is offered life and strength, bread and wine, which holds some New Testament weight, I, I believe, as well. I think I seem to remember another event in the New Testament where bread and wine were involved in bread being broken. Anyway, let's keep reading verse 2. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, now, what this means, when it says that Abraham tithed, he, uh, tenth portion, that, that just, tithe is just a word that means tenth or ten percent. So w what this means is that, is that he tithes. So Abram comes across the king of righteousness, the king of peace. He tithes ten percent of all of the spoils of the battle. And, and, and we need to understand here that the tithe in the, to the Hebrew wasn't just, oh, okay, now I'll give you my ten percent. What it really was, it was a symbolic gesture that meant all I have and all I own is yours. 
It's not just, okay, I have to do this so, so that God will bless me. And it's a symbolic gesture that says, hey, this 10% of yours, but rather the truth is everything is yours. And this is just a symbol of that. And by the way, that's still what the tithe means to us today. So you have Abraham tithing or saying, everything is yours to the king of peace, the king of righteousness. This is very, very strange, very odd thing that Abraham would just come back and meet this guy out of the blue and begin to do this. Verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, verse 3 exegetically has caused people fits for years because this verse makes it sound like Melchizedek is eternal. And, and if you read it that way, you're going, oh, all right, now I'm really confused. What do we have? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Melchizedek? What's going on here? I don't get this. But that's not what's happening here because this is not a reference to the man. It's a reference to the story. Do you understand the difference? So it's not saying that Melchizedek is eternal, but he's saying that in the story, we hear nothing about his beginning. We hear nothing about where he came from. We know nothing of his ending, which is highly unusual in the Old Testament. So, so the writer of Hebrews is saying the silence that occurs in the book of Genesis is there on purpose. The Holy Spirit intentionally did not include where Melchizedek came from and where he died or any of that information. He did it on purpose because he was writing into the scripture this word picture to show us that there is a king of peace and a king of righteousness who has no beginning and who has no end, who longs to offer life and strength to those whose hearts are completely his. That's the picture. So, so just to make it as clear as possible, Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus. Abraham in, is in this story is a picture of you and me. Are, are, you, are you with me? Okay, I know, this, I promise this will all come together. Okay, now we're going to move on from here. We're going we're to kind of trudge through some very wordy things. Before we get to that, I, I want to explain to you the, the function of a priest in Hebrew society. Because we're talking about Melchizedek as, as priest. We're talking about earthly priests, we need to understand what we're talking about. So we're all on the same page. If we were living under the Levitical system, that's the Old Testament system of the priest and the temple and the sacrifices. If we were living under that system, those of us who were struggling with guilt, those of us who had sinned, we were overwhelmed. We had a lust issue. We were broken on the inside. Something had, has gone wrong in our wiring we would come to a Levitical priest and we would say, I'm struggling with this. I've done this. I've done that. I've sinned here. I'm doing these things and I hate these things, but this is what I've done. And then the Levitical priest would take your life and he would lay it down against the law and he would show you right behavior. And then they would kill an animal for your, for your screw up, for your sin in your place. That's the, 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 in essence, the Levitical priest. And parts of this are actually very similar to the functions of people today, like biblical counselors and pastors. Anybody who's going who's gonna to come in and go, hey, you know, this behavior is an issue. This is why it's an issue. This is what the Bible says about it. This is what needs to change uh, to get over it and, and move on. So now, now what's about to happen in the text? What we're, we're about to read is uh, the scripture is going to say that the office of the priest is secondary to what God wants to do in the end. 
I'm going to show you what it says here. Let, let's go. This is going to get very wordy. So we're going to read a little bit, chat a little bit, read a little bit, chat a little bit, make sure we understand as we walk through this. Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Now, let me explain to you why this is here, why this is such a big deal, because this is a, a bit of, a, of an oxymoron to, to a Hebrew because the, the fact was patriarchs did not tithe to anybody. This, is, this was before the, the Levitical priesthood was set up. Patriarchs didn't tar, tithe because they sat atop the family as the authority figure. Kind of like when, when my dad was still alive and, and our family would all get together, maybe Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever, or maybe it was just a regular old lunch or supper. Although I am the preacher in the family, I did not bless the meal. My father blessed the meal or he would ask somebody else to do so because, because he was the patriarch in the family. It was his responsibility. You know what? You get what I'm saying. And in this system, the patriarch bent their knee to no one. And that's why it makes it so interesting that Abraham, he specifically says, Abraham, the patriarch, bends his knee and he tithes to Melchizedek. So this would make no sense to the Hebrews. So God's going to unpack it for them uh, in verse 5. He begins to unpack it. It says, And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. So all he's saying there is that, price, that priests get tithes from other descendants of Abraham, even though they are also descendants of Abraham. So he's going to make a point with that. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So he's trying to make a point here that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham because Melchizedek was the one who was blessing Abraham. And he said, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, that's the case of the Levit Leviticus priest, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, the order of Melchizedek, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. In other words, he's saying even Levi, who was a priest who receives tithes, in a sense, he paid tithes to Melchizedek because he was still in, in the loins of Abraham. That's what he's unpacking for us here. The, the, that Leviticus order of priests, the thing that they do, it would be called an Abrahamic system. And he's trying to make the point there's something greater than Abraham. Because Abraham bowed his knee to Melchizedek. And as great as Abraham was, this great patriarch, he's pointing out that there was something greater than him. So that although there was great value in what the priests did and what they do, in the end, he's saying it is secondary to what Jesus wants to do in the hearts of men and women. Are you, are you following with me? I, I promise you it will start coming together here in a minute. In fact, this is the next verses is where things are going to really start to come together and make sense. Verse 11. Now if perfection, listen, this is so powerful. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than, than one named after the order of Aaron? So here's what happened, just happened. The scripture just said that if you and I could be made right by obeying the law, 
Why did he send Jesus? That's exactly what just happened there. If you and I could gain right standing before God by doing everything that's right and avoiding everything that's wrong, then why would we need Jesus Christ at all? That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying why, if the Old Testament priesthood could work to make us right with God, then why would God bring something afterward that is greater? That's the whole point he's trying to make. Why send Jesus at all? Why? Well, you know, we sang songs, a lot of songs earlier. And did, did you notice that we didn't sing any songs to Moses? <laughs> did, you, did you pick up on that today? Did you, did you pick up that there was nobody saying, how great is our patriarch Moses? You know, we, we didn't sing that at all. Uh, why? First of all, because it's hard to say that all in one song. But, but, but why? Well, Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. If you haven't read it, you should. And he said in that, he said in that book, he said, if right standing with God could occur because of good bookkeeping, we'd be worshiping Moses and not Jesus. Yeah, he just asked, why would he need to send Jesus at all if, if we could just be good and get there? All right, it, it's a rhetorical question. It needs not be answered at all. All right, let's go. Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And now, you can, there's a couple things he's saying here. First of all, he's saying that the law has to change if you're going to change the priesthood because the priesthood is in the law. But he's also saying something I think that's even more than that. You can see, we see it in our culture. Let me ask you a little question and, and this is not a political statement at all. I just want to ask you the question, has there been a, uh, any, has, can anybody see a difference in our culture, in our nation, uh, between the Trump administration and the Biden administration? So has anybody noticed a difference? Well, well, yeah, you know, some of the younger people that are not paying attention to things say, well, I, don't know, I heard something about gas prices. I don't know, you know, but, but, and I'm not, like I said, I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying that there have been major differences in policy and in emphasis for, for better or for worse. It's different. And it's always different when you get different leadership. He's saying, listen, when there's a new person at the top, things change. So he's saying now when you, you have the old order of priesthood where it all started with Aaron, he said now you're going to have a new priest who's going to be Jesus. And since you've got a new priest, a new high priest, it's going to change everything. That's what he's saying here. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So we all know the priestly order was from the tribe of, anybody remember? Levi, the tribe of Levi. Jesus, our new high priest, isn't even a part of the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. That's, that's the lion of Judah. That's why we call him that, because he's from the tribe of Judah. So, so he's making that point. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. 
Listen to this. For the law made nothing perfect. The law makes nothing perfect. The law makes no thing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Let me ask you a question. How many of you here have been saved longer than 10 years? Let me just see your hand. And if you're not raising your hand, don't be embarrassed or anything because you're in some ways you're probably better off than, than the rest of us. But, but what happens in our lives often is that when the grace of Christ comes alive uh, in the heart of a man and woman, and I'm not talking about them, you know, just walking down an aisle to an altar or being baptized or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not talking about when you were six years old and saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. And I'm not saying you weren't saved in that moment, but I'm saying that there is this moment that comes in our lives when our soul is awakened to the, to the reality of our deceived, wicked heart and awakened to the beauty of who Christ really is. And in that moment, grace begins to take root. There is this zeal and there is this joy for who Jesus is and you want to be near him. You remember that moment in your life, don't you? When Jesus became so real and he became so beautiful to you that all you wanted to do was know him and be near him. And, 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 and when that happens, things don't feel like duty anymore. They, they feel like a delight. Are you, are you tracking with me? You remember that? You know, churches have this sort of unwritten code of Christian behavior that we use to kind of define what it means to be a Christian. And depending on the time of life in which you get saved, that list, list probably looks a little different. Like, like if your heart was awakened to the reality of Christ in college, then all of a sudden you have to start playing acoustic guitar because you can't be a Christian in college and not play acoustic guitar. There's just a rule. And you have to like join a worship band and start reading John Piper's books and that sort of thing. And, and you don't go here and you, and you do that and that sort of thing. And, you, and what you do, you start filling out that list. Now, now, when you're older and you get saved, you come to know Christ, you're, that reality of who he is is awakened in your heart. It, it looks a little bit different because now what it means is you're, you're probably a Republican and you have to fight the moral quandary that our nation is in. And, 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 and we as Christians are hard pressed. And by the way, if you like to fly to Iran or China, then you can know what hard pressed really means. But, but you've got this checklist and you have to study this. You have to join this. You have to go here. You do this. You don't do that. You start doing these things. And in fact, let me say this. If you have been a Christian 10 years or longer and this is not your testimony, then I need you to get a hold of me because you are an anomaly. I mean, you're like Neo in the Matrix. You know, you're the one. <laughs> that's it. So you need to you need to get a hold of me because I need to learn from you if that's not your story. But here's my point. What ends up happening in many of us, if not most of us, is we begin to try to conform to this list of expectations on Christian behavior, whether spoken or unspoken. And we begin working on mastering that list and where we can't master it, we pretend to master it. And what ends up happening is we know more and more and more in knowledge about God. And then one day, we wake up and can't find him anywhere. Our knowledge about God has increased exponentially over oh, since that moment that he became real to us. But Jesus just seems to be nowhere 
to be found. He's nowhere to be found. Where is he? What's going on? I, I could explain it like this. Um, you know, even if you're not into football, you've probably heard of Peyton Manning. You know, because he's famous from commercials and all kinds of things. But, uh, but uh, he was raised in Louisiana and played football for University of Tennessee and where he set all kinds of records. And from there, he was drafted by the Indianapolis Colts and became a record-setting quarterback in the NFL and won two Super Bowls with two different teams. And he has wins against every team in the NFL, all this kind of stuff. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I can, if I had my computer here right now, I could Google him. And I could find out his wife's name. I could find out the high school he went to. I could find out his mom's name. I could find out probably his children's name. I could find out the drink that he prefers to, with his steak when he eats out. I could find his favorite restaurant. I could find out tons of things about Peyton Manning. And then I could go to dinner with you and, and I might be able to convince you by the, my knowledge about him that I actually know him. Right? So we're sitting there, you know, you, your steak looks delicious. And I, and, and I could say, you know, your steak looks good. But, you know, Peyton Manning prefers Merlot with the steak. Uh, and, and Vanessa, his wife, oh my, I don't even know if that's her name. I just, I didn't Google her anything. But, uh, but uh, you know, but I could talk in such a way that you, you'd be going, yeah, yeah, he knows Peyton. He knows Peyton Manning. But, but here's my great fear for you and my great fear for me. My great fear is that we would know God like I know Peyton Manning. That we can spout out all the facts about him. That we know tons about Jesus. And we know nothing about the freedom and the life that he brings. Now, now here's the problem with the law. We, I kind of emphasized that we were reading it. The law does not set anybody free. The problem with the law and the, and the reason Jesus had to come is because the law enables us to understand wrong behavior and it prescribes right behavior, but it does nothing to free the soul. Let me put it this way. I think you'll understand it like this. Let me ask you a question. Is the alcoholic who wakes up tomorrow and does not drink but he is paralyzed all day long by his own addiction to alcohol, is that person free? Absolutely not. In fact, Jesus would attack the same idea by saying, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say if your heart's full of lust, you're just as broken. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, if you're always in a rage, you're no better off than the murderer. That's, that's what Jesus would say. And the thing is, if we follow the way of the law, then we, can, we sort of grit down with discipline and we try to overcome behavior without our hearts being transformed. In short, this is what happens. We become conformed to a pattern of religion, but we've never been transformed by the Holy Spirit of God. We've been conformed to a pattern of religion, but never transformed by the Spirit of God. Let, let me try to explain this to you like this. And, and I hope you don't take this wrong. But, but what, what, let me, one of the things that's sort of on our list in America here is, is beer. 
And, and it is an obvious example of what I'm talking about here. For some reason or another, to evangelicals, this is some, like some kind of litmus test about how we feel about Jesus. If you drink beer with dinner, then you have issues or something. And, and, and when we follow that line of reasoning, well, then, then what happens is we begin to sound like morons out there because then people say, well, does, didn't Jesus turn water into wine? And then we say, well, wine back there, back then wasn't really fermented. It didn't really have alcohol in it, which is exactly why the Proverbs say, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. You know, because, you know, grape juice makes a room crazy, right? So, so when people get too much grape juice in them, all kinds of debauchery breaks out. So stay off the juice, all right? That's what it sounds like we're saying. And we just end up sounding ridiculous. Now, now I am not up here in any way saying to you, go out for lunch and get yourself a Budweiser or anything like that. That's not my point. That's, I'm not saying anything about that. In fact, I believe there are good biblical reasons to avoid alcohol because of, for a lot of different issues, a lot of different reasons. But that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm using it as an illustration to try to expose the painful reality that the relational, this relational Jesus who transforms our hearts so that the weight of sin disappears is not... Not the Jesus that a lot of us are worshiping because a lot of us are worshiping a list instead of seeking a relationship with Jesus and we get caught up in the list and we got to do the list you got to avoid these things and it's all about this and it's more about us looking right in the eyes of the people around us than it is about actually drawing near to the God who saves us and sanctifies us and wants to set us free from this sin because if we keep the list but we don't let Jesus in to transform us then we're not really free of the list you get it and many of us have lost him in the pursuit of a checklist. We're more concerned about keeping our little checklist so that everyone around us will see that we're okay, but we've lost touch with the one who actually gives life. Instead, we're with all our might trying to conform to a pattern of morality that has done nothing but exhaust us for years. Let's keep reading because there's some good news coming. Some really good news. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest by an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now, all this is saying is that this is the final way that Jesus is going to reach the world. That there's not going to be another high priest. This is it. And we know that because... He said, Old Testament priests did not swear an oath when they started serving as a priest. Because an oath signifies forever. Like when I stood at the altar with my wife and we entered into an oath covenant-based relationship of marriage, we said, for better, for worse, till death do us parts. And so what that means is, whether this thing goes good from the very beginning or whether this thing goes bad from that moment on, I'm in it no matter what. That's what that oath means. And I swore an oath, which means the thing is permanent. That's what it means. And now he's saying the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood, they did not need an oath because it was never planned to be a permanent way to get to God. Let's keep reading. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This, this is going to be another reason why Jesus is so much better than the law. The former priest 
were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So he, he's, he's going to show another way the law is lacking. Not only can the law not change your heart, but now he says God had to have a ton of priests over the years because they kept dying. That's what he says. They were, they were always limited in how much they could do to help because they were human and they were dying all the time. And Jesus, he says, he continues in his priesthood because he is going to continue forever. Now, what does this mean for us, though? This is some of the good news. Let, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had that moment, that event, something happened where your world unravels? And you've not been able to get a hold of anybody? You ever had that moment? Pro you, you probably have some sort of support system, you know, friends, family, whatever. Everybody should have one. Everyone should have a, a few people that they can go deep with in order to find help when you need it. It's, I mean, Jesus did the same thing. He had a large crowds, but inside that crowd, there was like a group of 72 that he sent out and that he knew them a little bit better. But inside that group of 72, there were, he knew 12 of them really well. But then even inside the 12, there were three of them, three men with whom he knew much more intimately. And he pu pulled them into different situations with him. So, I mean, like in my life, my, my wife knows me better than anybody else. And then I have just a few close friends uh, to whom I can go when I need help or when I need somebody to whom I can, uh, can speak with, I can talk to. And, and, and even in my life, though, here's the thing. Even in my life, there have been moments, those dark, heavy, weighty moments when there's no one to be found. You've been there? I mean, I, I, in those moments, I've had those moments where I'm just calling people that I know just to, just to have a voice, to hear a voice, to have somebody comfort me and, and, and pray with me and just say, it's going to be all right. Jesus has got this. And, and I keep getting voicemail. And, and, you, and you, know, you know it's just people screening your call, right? You know that because, I mean, you've been with them at dinner where they're like, hmm, mm, not later. You know, I, so I just think that's what they're doing when, when you get the voicemail. They screened you. It's just this weird social pecking order. But, but here's the thing. Here's, here's the point I'm trying to make. When there's no one else to be found and you are all on your own, Jesus is saying, here's another way I'm greater. greater. I am always, always, always available. 2 a.m., available. Thursday night, available. Sunday morning, available. Christmas day, available. I do not nap. I do not eat dinner. I have no need. I am always available to those who will draw near to me. There is no voicemail, no three days to get back by, by email. I am here, right now, here. Isn't that encouraging? But, but let's finish it. Well, of course, when I say that, I always feel like that, that one Street Fighter game. <laughs> finish him! <laughs> Some of, you know what some of you know what I'm talking about, but it just popped in my mind and I probably didn't need to share it. Verse, verse 25. Finish it. So I'm going to get ready to do a power punch on you here. Here we go. Verse 25. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always, listen, he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, 
if you get what we are trying to do here and understand in Scripture, you'll say us instead of them. You'll say he's always living to make, make intercession for me. You know what that means? And this, this thought has stuck in my mind this week because I've been preparing. Jesus is praying for you right now. Right now. There have been times this week that uh, this thought has crossed my mind as I was preparing, and I could just hear in my mind, uh, I could hear the, the Jesus saying, Okay, Father, help him. Help him get the right words. Help him understand this so he can convey this to these people. And today you're sitting there, and Jesus is at the right hand of God, and he's saying, Save, stir, help them. Move them. Heal them. You know, the best place you can see this is where Jesus comes up to Peter. And he tells Peter, this is one of those things you don't want to hear from God. How many of you are like, you know, we always want God to speak to us. But then sometimes God says things where like, I, don't, I didn't want to hear that. You know what I'm talking about? This is what happened to Peter because Jesus walks up to Peter and he says, the devil has asked permission to sift you like wheat. And he's, I love the story, first of all, because it, it shows the devil for the peon he is because he has to come to God and say, can I sift him, please? Mm, you know, but, but Jesus is like, sure, go ahead. He needs it because Jesus says, I'm going to let Satan sift you. You think Jesus don't like, I mean, you don't want to hear these kind of things. You know, can you imagine Peter in that moment? He's like, what, 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 wait, What? But then he says, but don't fear. I've prayed for you. Man, that doesn't do something for you when you're walking through the storm. When you remember Peter and, and you begin to realize, well, maybe the devil went to the father and he said, I want to I I sift Lisa. But, the, but Jesus says, don't be afraid, Lisa. I've prayed for you. Don't be afraid, Pansy. I prayed for you. Don't, don't be afraid, Woody. I prayed for you. And what happens? Well, Peter blows it. <laughs> he blows it big time, doesn't he? But then he comes back and he's restored. Why? Because Jesus prayed for him. And he's praying for you right now. Oh, let them hear my truth. Stir their hearts. Move them into the deep end of the pool. Strengthen those weak knees so that they can stand. He's praying for you. And then comes the understatement of the entire chapter, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That is the understatement of the year. The text just said, being bound to the law, being bound to the moral code, does not get you in to see God. The, the reality is that you and I have a high priest 
who wants to transform our souls in such a way that sin loses its power. So you have a high priest who's not interested in you gaining control over your lust, but he's interested in healing you of your lust. You don't have a high priest that commands you to get control of your lies and get control of your drinking or get control of your issues or get control of your sin. You have a high priest who wants to heal you of those things. So it's fitting that we should have him. Are you kidding me? Fitting? That's the greatest news in the history of the world. But, but you know what? We, we love running back to the law. So... We're going to close this morning, but maybe, maybe you're not hearing me at all today. Maybe you're just sitting here today saying, maybe I've just done a horrible job with the text, and, and you're like, you, you lost me at Melchizedek, whatever. You know, I don't know. Or maybe, maybe you can't hear me because your ego is so, so gargantuan that the only way out will be if God, in his mercy, lets that huge head of yours crush you. And that would be God's mercy. It would not be God's mercy to let you walk around with your inflated ego the rest of your life. So, so maybe you're not hearing me today because of your pride, because you, you just want to say, no, I'm, I'm not there. I don't have that problem. I'm better. I'm good. But maybe you are hearing me today. Maybe I've hit the nail on the head for you in your life. If I have, it's by the grace of God and the anointing of the Spirit. But maybe today you're tired of the short circuit in your soul. Grace takes the root, and, and the moment honesty occurs in the deep parts of the soul, that's when grace takes roots. That's, that's why we have connect groups, which, by the way, are starting up again next Sunday. Find a group, get involved. They're so important because it's a place where we can be led into truth and where grace can take root in our lives if we'll, if we'll be honest and open there. And, but we need to go into the deep parts of the heart where the darkness that's in us can, all, can be exposed for what it is, and in, and in that moment, the real honesty and in that moment of clarity where our stuff is seen, then and only then does grace and transformation begin to occur. How can I be set free of something of which I'm not even willing to admit I have? What's it? You've all heard the first step to overcoming addiction. Admit you have a problem. We're addicted to sin in many of our lives. And if we want to play the game and pretend, and I'm not, listen, I know some of you are just doing fantastic. You're so near to the Lord. You're drawing near to Him. But there are some of us here that, that we, we're just, we're kind of in that place where like, I just, just can't seem to find Jesus anymore. Well, the way you find Him is to go back to do the things you did at first. The way to find Him is to be honest Come clean, be honest, find a group of people, and go deep together. In fact, you know, why don't you come hang out with us on Wednesday? We're getting into the Word, and it's not, you know, I know it's not a, really a small group setting, but it's an opportunity to get into the Word together, and you can come and eat dinner with us. There's something holy about breaking bread together. I'll be there Wednesday, I promise. Yeah, I'll save you a seat even. 
And if you're going, oh, I, I don't know, I don't know if that's for me, let, let, me, let me just ask you this. How, how's the last three years been going? The, on the short circuit thing, this just, let's just go three years. How's the last three years worked? Have you been short circuiting for three years? And some of you are going, no, more like 27. Do you keep falling back in the same junk? That's that short circuit I'm talking about. Are you still stuck in the same, same cycle? Do you, do you get that same thing popping up over and over again? How, how about maybe you just take a chance, man? You keep hearing the promises over and over and over and over again. How about we buy in? You keep short-circuiting the same issue over and over again. The, the same thing creeping up in our lives. The same thing destroying your relationships. The same thing keeping you away from God. The same thing over and over and over and over again haunting you. How about we just... Look to Him for some help and not pretend. How about we find some people who can help us walk in grace and freedom? Is it risky? Oh, yeah. Oh, you better believe it's risky. But, but what's the other option? The other option is to keep doing it the way you're doing it. I don't know what you, about you, but I do not want to, through sheer willpower, behave correctly only to become overwhelmed in my soul. I want to be healed. And I can only, but I can only decide for me. So the law beckons, it always will. There's always going to be the list, it'll always be there, and, and it will never bring life. And, and by the way, I'm not saying that we shouldn't Strive to live a life of holiness because that's what, the work, that's what the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. He will lead us to holiness, but it's about seeking Him and drawing near to Him. And He changes us, not us coming up with a list and saying, I'm going to walk by this list. It's always going to be there, but it'll never bring life. So, so God sent Jesus. He came in the flesh. And I want to end the day with one passage of Scripture from Romans 8.3. It's one of my favorite verses in all of scripture because it reminds me reminds me of who I am and who he is you ready Romans 8 3 what the law could not do because human nature was weak God did oh I love those words God did God did bow your head let's pray Father, I thank you for today and I thank you for a chance just to get together and, and talk about the fact that really we are pretty powerless to make changes in us. If we could have transformed our lives, if we could have changed ourselves, we would have done it years ago. But Lord, we, we realize that we need you to change us and we can't see that change, that transformation until we are honest about where we are. Lord, I pray for my family in here, and I, I pray for my brothers and sisters, and the, the, I pray for those, God, that are exhausted because they're still trying to go the, the Levitical route. They're, they're still trying to wear the mask, and they're still trying to keep the list instead of pursuing true freedom and grace from your throne. I pray for my brothers and sisters in here today who are exhausted because they're trying to earn what cannot ever be earned. 
Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who, who could sit down and talk with me about what you're like and about what you do and all, all these things about you, but somehow they've lost you and they've lost that connection to you and that, that grace and that hope. I pray for my brothers and sisters who sit in here in despair right now because they feel like sin has mastered them and they just can't seem to overcome it. And I pray, God, that today they would remember that you are a high priest like no other. That you are a high priest that's always, always there. And that you are praying for them. You're not pointing the finger and judging them with anger. You're praying for them right now. And God, I pray that we do more than just talk about truth and freedom. But God, that you would help us to give us the courage to take the steps we need to begin to find help and freedom and life and truth. God, I pray that today would be, be a, begin a healing process in our lives. Those that are hurting God because they've just, they're, they're just been, been trying to continue to play the church game and, and yet they just lost that sense of who you are and where you are. Lord, I know you want to restore that. And let, let today be that day with heads bowed and eyes closed. Oh, I sense his presence here today. I wonder if there's anybody here and say, Pastor, I need you to pray for me. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not even going to ask you to try to explain to me what's going on or what the Spirit's speaking to you, but maybe it's just a simple question to say. How many of you would say, Pastor, I, I feel what you're talking about going on in my life. I feel that draw toward the list. I found myself becoming judgmental. I found myself playing the church game. I found myself wearing the mask. Today, I just, I just want Jesus. Today, I just want to draw near to him. I know he can help me with all these other things. I don't want to master my sins and I control my sins. I want to be healed from them. If that's you today, would you just slip your hand up so I can pray for you? Maybe you're online. You can just put in comment, yes. Yes. Anybody else? Yes. Yes. Well, there are hands, several hands going up. Maybe you're online. You can just put a little hand emoji in the comments and we'll pray for you. Is there anybody else? Say, Pastor, pray for me. Yes. Yes. Father, you've seen every hand. And Lord God, these are people who are, are not interested in playing church. They're not interested in doing religion. They want to find freedom. They want to find healing in their souls. They want to find that first love, Lord God, that seems to have escaped and, and they, they want to discover that vibrance that was once there so bright and so real that, that the things we did were not, they were not drudgery, but they were a joy. God, I just pray that today that you'd begin a work in them. Lord, that 
that beyond today, God, that you would help them to say, you know, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to get in a small group. I'm going to get in a connect group. I'm going, to, I'm going to get into overcomers group. I'm going to get into a Sunday school group. I'm going to get into some place where I can find some people who can help me go deep with Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we seek you, not our list, but as we seek you, that you would transform us. That God, that you would heal us of those things so that we're not worried about the list of rights and wrongs, but God, that as your spirit works in us, the desire for all those wrongs just begins to slowly fade away and all we long for is what you have for us. God, I pray that you would have your way. Do what you want to do in us. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.